everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. And this past Monday, January 13th, we had our first Engage and Equip Live of 2020. Throughout the year, we host this semi-monthly event to get equipped with the skills to serve in ministry. This episode is the recording of Nick's first hour talk called The Basis of Belonging, where he talks about our church covenant and how being part of a covenant drives us to our local church. He'll talk about where we've come from in the history of High Point Church and what it means to be in covenant with one another. As always, if you've got a question about what you heard, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. Welcome. You are the best people at church because you were at... Mike was not supposed to reveal that I was going to talk about the church covenant tonight. The fact that you may have found out about that and are here is just, I have so much respect for you. I was never, I'm still not as spiritually mature as you. Like right now, I'm not as spiritually mature as you. So I just want to say it's so awesome that you're here. Um, I hear Mike and I and the staff, we hear stories all the time about how hard it is to be part of a church and to be the pastor of a church. I sat down with a couple, brand new couple. It's their second week at church this Sunday morning. Um, I think I shook 15 hands on Sunday morning. Two-thirds of them had been here less than four weeks. About a third of them had been, this was their first week at High Point Church. So I want you to understand that, like, it's real, that's weird, man. It's, there's, for some reason, a lot of people are visiting our church, and so it's a lot of extra work for us who are trying to welcome people and to create an ongoing wave of hospitality when so many new people are here. We have more than 10% of the people who are at High Point right now have been here less than six months. Do you understand that? Because you may not know this, um, October 24th or whatever it was, the week I got back from Colorado, I have no idea why this is, but we remember all the work we did, we were like, we're going to have this great fall series, this fall series, we're going to have pork to eat, and you're going to love it, and there's going to be fireworks and stuff, and we're going to give out new Oldsmobiles, and so that first week of the fall, big fall campaign, we had 40 more people here than normally in terms of adult attendance, right? And then two weeks later, it was exactly the same as it was the week before the campaign started. Right? And then for some reason, on like October 24th, the second week we were preaching about marriage. Maybe that was, had something to do with that. I don't know. 140 people just show up. Now, it may be that it was people who go to High Point who only come every couple of weeks, and they were like, shoot, they're talking about marriage. We need to get our butts there. But from that week right through um, Christmas, more than 800 people were here every Sunday, and then it dropped off a little bit with the big, like the tweener week, and then we had the snow this last week. So, and, and even then, it was still high at 700. So something kind of weird is happening. And then we got a ton of new connection cards on Sunday, partly because Mike preached the announcements for 27 minutes, but partly because there's just new people here. <laughs> Sorry. I got a quote of a hit here. Yeah, Mike's, Mike needs it. Uh, anyway, so, um, so I just want you to know that like, you know, some of you were here when I was on, up on Sunday morning, I was like, listen, you know, you guys, everybody says they want to be part of a growing church, but I see every new person as, an, as another responsibility. It's like having another child. It's hard. And like, listen, when you are a volunteer and you love your church and you really want to be used by God, and it's a really exciting thing to know that that's happening. Do you know how many people, so how long was it since we had baptisms? Like just a couple of weeks, right? How many people do we have signed up for the next baptism? We've got 10 people signed up for baptism for the next one already. We only did it two weeks ago. So, yeah, I think that's pretty cool. And some of these people are, are people who got converted and really, I mean, they weren't just, like, one of them's a Mennonite who's like, yeah, I need to get baptized. I'm my own profession of faith. But for, for most of these people, it's like, hey, I, well, I don't know what's going on. And then Jesus, like, did something, and I want to follow him more. I mean, it, like, very significant stories of transformation. So that all, that's all happening, right? And it's, listen, it, a lot of it, it's, it's all going to come down to the grace of God. And in God's choice of how he displays his grace, you know, the Apostle Paul said, I work harder than any of them. But not I, but God who works in me, right? Like, the, it, these are not, it's, wouldn't it be great if it was, in some level, it would be just grace and then we didn't have to work at all and everything happened? But that's not how God it, does it. And so I want to, I really want to thank you guys and I also want to inspire you guys that we, Jesus said in John 4, he said, Remember that he came back and the, the, the other apostles were like, hey, we got food, man. He's like, I've got food you don't know anything about. And then he said, they said, they're like, what are you talking about? He's like, listen, look out at the fields of harvest. He said, he said the wields the, the are, are fife for harvest. 
I can't keep going with that. I can't do it in real time. But he said, look, the wheels are, the, the wheels are five for the harvest. <laughs> the fields are white for harvest, right? So pray that workers would go out and take it in. And like, uh, there are lots of, I've been saying this for years, only half believing it. But honestly, God, that is literally what's happening at this moment at High Point Church. At this moment at High Point Church, in one of the most secular cities in America, right now here, at least in this acreage, every Sunday morning, that's literally happening. There is, God is literally handing us a harvest of people, and we are the workers. And if we work, and if we encourage other people to love, to tell the truth, to encourage, to invite, to make social space for, to remember the names of other people, we will cooperate with the Spirit to take in an incredible harvest of people. And then our lives will be way more complicated, which will be awesome. It's like having a fourth kid, man. You know what I mean? Okay, now, um, that's the future, okay? And to prepare ourselves for the future, we should take a minute to talk about the past. Okay? And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight for just a few minutes. So, I want to go over how our fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers biblically and in a gospel-centered way understood our basis of belonging together in what they created called the church covenant. Most people who come or look at a church who care about what scripture says and teaches will go to our website or they'll go to our church constitution and they will read the doctrinal statement. They'll just make sure it has those 13 main points starting with either a triune God or the Bible being God's word and then flowing from there. And they almost never will read what goes up above it. But above it are six paragraphs that constitute us as a local church. Okay? And I'm going to talk a little bit about those in a minute. Now, when... um. When Mike was tasked with putting together the new members class, he started looking through some of our old documents because Mike is not from Congregational Baptist Churches, if you know anything about Mike Beresford. He's actually from, like, charismatic, top-down, spiritual leadership guy churches, which can be fantastic, but they're not like this one. This one was started as a, the most, the most fundamentalist Baptist church in town. Okay, like, that's what we were in the 19—whatever's when we got founded. I'm going to ask you about that a little bit. So, I don't—we're going to get to that. Just hold on, okay? Right? And so, but when he was going through all the pictures and the documents of the church— he found out how Baptists dressed for church in 1976, right? He, he also found out that light-colored, slightly frayed denim has been in before, has been highly fashionable. So thank you, Vince Pieri. Also, that's Vince in the 60s. And then we also found out what, like, a real pastor dressed like. And I think Mike still has that suit somewhere. He got, I think Dick Sisson left it in his office for him. Um, Dick Sisson was the pastor of High Point Church from 1978 to 1994, 1978 to 1994. That's a lot of things happened between 1978 and 1994. In fact, I was one year old, and I was one year from graduating from high school when Dick Sisson was pastor of this church, right? That's how long that was. Okay, 19 years. I think that that's the record. I think to have the record of length at High Point Church, you have to beat 19 years, which I'm not going to live that long. Okay, it's just kidding. <laughs> Hopefully, right? And then this is when people, back then when people dressed honorably for, like, using a shovel. Like, this guy— this is faith right here. You want to know what faith is? Faith is wearing a white suit <laughs> to do some shoveling, okay? Now, when it comes to our fathers and our forefathers, our grandmothers and our, our mothers, um, there are things about the way people older than us behaved and did things that are funny, right? And we make fun of people older than us sometimes. And sometimes that's funny because, like, honest to God, they'll make fun of themselves. Like, if you've worn bell bottoms, you should be able to make fun of yourself. If you don't, you don't, you've got, there's problems, right? And you shouldn't work around heavy equipment, right? There's issues with that. But, like, there are other things about our forefathers and mothers that we don't understand, we make fun of them not because they're funny and not because our grandmothers and our mothers and fathers and grandfathers would make fun of them, but because we make fun of them out of our ignorance and stupidity and because we don't know what happened 20 minutes before we were born or figured out what was going on. For example, if you take, if you take that last picture, see this picture right here, right? The funny guy with the white, he's got a white suit on and he's digging. Okay, now here, here's the thing. These people understood what it meant to be a covenant church together. They understood the concept of a covenant with marriage, but they believed that the concept of a covenant, an unbreakable binding together of people for life together, was how a church and membership in a church was constituted. Okay? Very few of us understand it that way. And yet, what else could it mean that you're brothers and sisters together? What else could it mean that you're a family who, is the, who are heirs of Christ? What, what else could it mean, right, in some ways? Now, 
if you look at the same picture, like, there's a lot of people that, that think that trying to become a multi-ethnic church today as High Point Church, that we're the first people in the history of High Point Church. Everybody else is probably before us is probably racist, right? They, 1970s, a bunch of white people in Madison, probably a bunch of racists, weren't they? Right? But actually, this picture that shows the groundbreaking, you can see all these Chinese students and families behind the guy who's digging. Because at that time, not only were there a ton of Chinese students and families that came to, to Middleton Baptist at that time, but there was a Chinese pastor on staff at that time. There was a Chinese church that met in Middleton Baptist Church and was closely related with the body of Christ such that they were there for these kinds of events. Does that make sense? And also, it was a multi-generational church because you got that little kid with that look on his face, right? And you got this old lady looking around the stump because that was the best seat she could get. Okay. Also, th these are people who would go to church anywhere. I remember when I was in Florida, we tried to do this other campus, and it was a, it, the other church campus was not as nice as our church because it was a big, pretty church. And there was this one guy who showed up there who was like kind of a big Nick fan. And I was like, I was like, man, I don't, we can't, we just can't get enough people from church to come out to this campus to really make room. He's like, he's like, man, he's like, we can meet out in the woods if you asked us to. Like that was their attitude. And it wasn't just me. It was like they loved the church. They loved who we were, and they loved our vision. They wanted to reach more people. And then we were like, hey, we're going to meet out in the woods. They'd be like, well, it's where, where in the woods, you know? And that was their attitude. It, they didn't have this attitude of like, like this, coffee's, this coffee sucks. Like, that wasn't how they thought. They didn't talk that way. They didn't wonder if the, well, we could change the carpet, you know? Like, they didn't, that wasn't their attitude. They're like, listen, we're the body of Christ. We're the family of God. We have work to do together. We are covenant people, one with another. And so they like, they built a house. They're like, let's make a church. Let's build a house. They built this house. No walls in the house. It's just a house. Empty space. And then when they outgrew it, they built the walls. And then they sold it as a house. And then, you know what they did? They bought this land, which is now Asbury Methodist Church on University. And they raised the money to buy all the materials. And you know how, how they built it? They got an architect, like, like a builder guy. And they're like, you tell us what to do and we'll build it. And it says like casually in the 1960 to 1984 book of the history of High Point Church, some lady wrote this. The men worked hard and fast during the summer of 1962 so that by September, services were held in the basement. Okay, dudes, what did we do last summer? <laughs> like, on 1962, the men of this church, which is a much smaller church, a much smaller church, every age, all summer long, what did they do? They just built a church. Masonry, metalwork, 50 feet off the ground, right? So that by the end of the summer, they were having meetings in there, and so that by 1963, the next year, it looked like that. They raised the money, and then they built for the materials, and they built it with their bare hands, and they contracted a guy to watch them do it, right? That's what they did to build their church because that's what they believed in. Does that make sense? And then when it came to High Point, the building we're in now, they bought this place when it was a cornfield, and there was nothing out here. And they were like, we need to buy this place because the city's going to expand, and we need to, we need to find a place big enough for the vision God has given us, which is that he's going to lead many people to Jesus, and we need to have a place for them. Right? And they bought this field. And then when they, when they built this building, right? That's the sanctuary of High Point right now. When they, cl clearly the pillars have to be enormous because that's what's inside of them. Right? I was thinking, I was like, man, can we make those pillars like a lot smaller? But that's the issue for another time. So like, this, this is a sanctuary. And, you, and when I was told when I got here that a very substantial number of the families of High Point churches, High Point Church, took out second mortgages of their home so that they could make we could raise the money necessary to build this building. And then a, a number of things in here were built with people's bare hands. This wasn't all done with contracted labor. So, for example, in the, um, in the staff lounge coffee area thing over there, the, where you get your coffee in the morning, those windows up above the dividing doors, those are all put in by people who went to High Point Church that had some skills, as um, Napoleon Dynamite says. And so, like, there was sweat equity, and people took out second mortgages because they believed in building this place. They, and they, none of them knew you. None of them could literally picture you, right? You were like a hypothetical person in their mind. They didn't know you. They didn't know what you'd be like. They didn't know if you would care about them. They, they didn't know if you would take seriously what they were trying to do. They didn't know if you would wreck their church. They didn't, had no idea what you would do or who you'd be. But they still believed in you. They believed that God would find you. They believed that God would gather you here. They believed that God would make you covenant family with each other. And they believed that in your generation, in your time, you would decide what God was calling this church to do. Does that make sense? But listen, these were some serious business people. And when we read their theology 
of what a church should be. I want you to bear in mind that you can make fun of their language and you can make fun of their polyester ties and you can think that they were, they didn't understand, they wouldn't have understood the internet, right? And they would have thought Instagram was stupid and Instagram is stupid, okay? But they would have, these people accomplished something for the kingdom of God that you are standing on the shoulders of the shoulders of the shoulders of people right now. Do you understand that? And I think it's sometimes, like, as a, as a pastor, I, th- I think about pleasing Jesus. I want to I please Jesus, right? Like, I, like, I'm inspired when Billy Graham was asked, like, what do you expect? I, she's like, I just want Jesus to say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's all I'm after. And, like, on some level, that's all we should all ever be after. Who cares what anybody else thinks of us, Right? But it matters to me that spiritually I have mothers and fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers that here in this place prayed through the night, fasted for me, took out second mortgages on their homes, spent the summer of 1962 building a church with their bare hands. Like that, that means something to me, right? Just like the stories of other Christians from like church history mean something to me. Like, like the story of Adoniram Judson, like, way the heck over in Asia matters to me. But the fact that, like, that, that, like, Jim Tanner was, like, the evangelism pastor here 35 years ago and was, like, leading people to Jesus when I was a youngster. Like, that matters to me. And it's, it's why we're here. Even if you're like, well, I didn't get saved here. I didn't even get discipled here. Yeah, but you're here now. There's a flock here now to love you and to confront you and all the things that you need, right? Now, I want to take a little bit to look at this, this inheritance. So this guy right here, Archie McKinney. Archie McKinney was not a perfect man. He died this year. He was, he'd been living in Ohio. He, he moved b- before I got here, uh, partly because he wanted to hire me, and then he wanted to get out of my way. That's what he said. He's like, he's like I don't want to be here when you get here because I don't want anybody looking to me as to whether or not to follow you. We're handing this off to you and the elders. And so he moved to Ohio literally the week before I got here. And he, he died this year. He taught Sunday school at High Point Church for 50 years. Okay? So when they were meeting in a room, there were like six families meeting in a room somewhere. He was teaching Sunday school. He was a, he was a hematologist. Is that blood doctor? Hematologist? He was a hematologist. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm the pastor here is because like 25 years ago, when he was on the faculty at UW, he was leading a, gra- a graduate level intervarsity Bible study every single week. Brooks and Katrina Boyd, I think, dated in that one something. Or they might already been, I don't know, they probably weren't already married. Whatever. Yeah, you did, right? Like, they were, I think, my, was my brother in the group when you were there? Okay. Yeah, and so, like, when I, when my resume came in here, one of the reasons why I got in the short stack is because Archie McKinney knew who I was because he knew who my brother was because my brother was discipled by him 20-something years ago. Now he's an elder at a Baptist church just outside of UC Davis. He speaks to 200 college students every couple of weeks who are like engineers or something. They're going to UC Davis and trying to figure out if they believe in Jesus. Does that make sense? Because of like stuff that guy did, right? And, and he was not the only guy. There were lots of people here who ministered for a long period of time. He's just funny because he's arching. He's got those eyebrows, and he taught here so long, you know? I'm, I'm 42. Like I haven't even been alive as long as he taught Sunday school at this church. Do you understand? A lot of the older saints at this church, they learned the Bible from that guy. You don't even know who he is. But they learned the Bible from that, the whole Bible. He would, like, research the Bible, like, 15, 20 hours a week on top of being a hematologist university professor, and he would teach a Sunday school class that sometimes was as many as 70 or more people to come and learn expositionally about the Bible. Right? Wait, so, let me ask you this question, okay? This is a trick question. So long, how long, you may not know this, okay? How long has High Point been a church? How long has High Point been a church? Who knows? Anybody? 30 years? 53 years? Anybody? Okay, so when I got here, my first year in 2010, we celebrated 50 years as a local church in Madison. 50 years. Now, the trick here is, the answer is like 1,976 years, right? That's how long we've, we've been a church. Like on one level, we are just, as the local church, we're just part of the universal church. 
And all of our fathers and mothers in the faith go back to Jesus' apostles and the women who followed him. And right, like in, in one sense, we're part of a church that's 2,000 years old. And we are part of a local church that is part of that church that is 60 years old this year. Does that make sense? Now, I want to look at this document they put together when they became one group of people, okay? So it, it, it's meant to answer, okay, if we're, we're making a church, what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be this body of believers in a local setting that Christ instituted? Okay, and, and here, I'm going to read it for you. So, okay, on your table, there's a, there's a packet thingy. See, there's a copy of this for every one of you. I want every one of you to have it in your hand right now. Okay, so take those out. Now, the margins are set up to be racist against left-handed people. So I have a bunch of left-handed ones right here. If you need a left-handed one, let us know. We'll bring you some. Can somebody help with this? Here. Here, you. Can you help there? Give those to left-handed people. Um, let me give some to Nicole. Let me take these. Nicole, here you go. I know Aaron is left-handed. We got some left-handed people. God loves you. He made you that way. And there's, there's nothing against that. It's only 60% of our presidents and 90% of our astronauts are left-handed. It's not like we're better, you know? And so there it is. All right. Yeah, back there. Okay. You ready? Right here, we got Lynn Rawhauser. Anybody? All right. You got to raise them up aggressively, guys. Okay, here we go. Here's the church covenant. There's pens on the table. There's margins there. I want you guys to write stuff in and mark this up because you might want to take your small group through this. There's all kinds of uses for this. Okay, here we go. I, I want to read this at every congregational meeting. That's my new goal. Okay. Having been led by the Holy Spirit of God to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and to confess him as Lord, and on confession of this faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God in this assembly most solemnly and joyfully covenant with one another as one body in Christ to lead a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. We promise by the aid of the Holy Spirit to forsake the ways of sin and to walk together in Christian love and in the paths of righteousness. With this in view, we agree to strive together for both the peace and purity of this church, to sustain its worship and steadfastly to cherish and hold its ordinances, discipline and doctrines, to contribute as faithful stewards such time, talent, and money in the measure that God prospers each of us, that the responsibility for the work of the local church and the worldwide ministry of spreading the gospel be faithfully and effectively discharged. We also agree to maintain family and private devotions, to teach the Bible to our children, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to be just in our dealings and faithful in our engagements, to be exemplary in our conduct, to avoid all worldly practices which bring reproach, unkind words, and unrighteous anger. We also desire, by God's help, to avoid all worldly practices which bring reproach to the cause of Christ, and to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. We further agree to give and receive admonishment with meekness and affection to remember each other in prayer and to aid each other in case of sickness and distress to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and courtesy in speech. We commit to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation, to seek it without delay, and to be mindful of the scriptures. In case they hadn't covered everything, right? Got that last... That's like job descriptions where it's like, and other tasks to be assigned later. Okay. I think I skipped something here. Boom. Five. Oh. Oh, moreover, we agree that should we move from this place, we will, as soon as possible, unite with some local church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of the word of God. Okay. So I want to look at six critical teachings in this about the local church. And I'm doing this because I want you to see it in this context, partly because, as I'll say towards the end, the scriptures that make up this teaching are dispersed throughout the Bible. And so there isn't one passage in the Bible that you go read and it'll teach you all this stuff in one place. This is a theological statement that coalesces a lot of biblical passages together. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's go through these. I gotta go kind of quick because I was a little long on the other stuff. Okay, great. First is being led by the, by the Spirit to salvation, Christ's lordship, and baptism, that that naturally leads to covenant belonging in the body of Christ in the local church. You, see, you can see that in what they say here. They say, having been led by the Holy Spirit of God to receive Jesus as Savior, 
to confess him as Lord. Lord is an old English for master or ruler or king as Lord. And on confession of this faith, having been baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God in this assembly most solemnly and joyfully covenant with one another. You see, they understood that if those three things were true of you, that if the Holy Spirit had led you to salvation, to believe in Jesus as your Savior, and therefore to understand that he was king and God, and therefore your king and God, and therefore everybody else's king and God who had accepted Jesus as Savior, and if on the basis of that you started, you did the first thing that Jesus told you to do immediately upon doing that, which is you got baptized. You were baptized into his name and therefore into his people. So you're, you have Jesus as your Savior. He is your king. He's your king and the king of everybody else who believes in him. And you have taken on his name by being baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That means you've entered into his people by taking on his name. Therefore, you are in some sense together with them in an extraordinarily close and meaningful and important way. Therefore, what you must do with such people is to come together with them in a way that can't be broken. Because Jesus has saved you in a way that can't be broken. Jesus is king of you in a way that can't be broken. And Jesus has put his mark on you in baptism in a way that can't be broken. Therefore, we belong to each other in a way that can't be broken. Therefore, we both solemnly, just like at a wedding, we both solemnly and joyfully covenant with one another. As one body in Christ, to lead a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Does that make sense? The second is, since all believers must pursue love and righteousness, they utilize the ordinance of the local church as their primary context of pursuing it together. Right? Once you realize what we're supposed to pursue together, you realize that God has given you a particular means and place and group of people and institution in which to pursue that godliness together. Right? It says it this way in the covenant. We promise by the aid of the Holy Spirit to forsake the ways of sin and to walk together in Christian love and in the paths of righteousness. See, they know that's the goal. They read their Bibles. That's the goal. So they say, with this in view, therefore, with that goal in view, we agree to strive together. See the gracious striving? See, I didn't make that up. I made up that little catchy little phrase. But these people knew that, didn't they? We agree to strive together for both the peace and the purity of this church to sustain its worship and to steadfastly to cherish and hold its ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. You see what they understood? They understood when we come together and we pursue righteousness and godliness and Christian love, God has given a specific means by which to do it together, to do that striving, that we would worship God and adore his worth and joyfully love him together in worship, that we would cherish and hold its ordinances. That is, that is, when we have communion together and we declare the Lord's death until he comes, that we cherish that ritual and what it means together as one family. And that we recognize that when we cheer at baptisms and when we cherish the Lord's Supper and we utilize these things Jesus has instituted, like worship, Sabbath, communion, baptism, the ordinances, the things he's ordered us to do, that we cherish them knowing that they will change us when we strive together to do them towards the end of growing in Christian love and righteousness. Does that make sense? And they recognized that disciplines, the stuff we're supposed to do that aren't ordinances, that is reading our Bibles, paying attention to preaching, attending to preaching and teaching and encouragement and admonishment, trying to learn together, sharing with one another and praying for one another, all those things that aren't technically ordinances, but are the things that we're told in Scripture to do with one another more informally, those, those disciplines and doctrines, that is, there are truths we should be confessing together. We believe this, right? That doing that together is part of that striving, and it is the means that God uses to actually change us. And these people realized that that was one of the fundamental acts of the covenant of the local church. We come together to pursue godliness in the ordinances, disciplines, and doctrines, and worship of the local church. The worship of the church, the doctrines and its disciplines, are not the auxiliaries. They are not the boring worship stuff you have to put up with. They are the heart of the matter, and they have to be embraced with joy and focus and solemnity and desire for them to change us. Does that make sense? So when you come to worship, like that's how you should, when you come to church, you got to feel that way. you got to think that way. You gotta, it doesn't matter what the music is like. Are there theological words you can sing? Then sing them with joy and devotion with each other, encouraging one another. 
when you take that little tiny piece of bread, right, which I don't know if Jesus would even recognize that as a reasonable way to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but it still symbolizes a supper. You know what I mean? And you, you think about the fact that Jesus died for all those people around you, all those people you don't like, all those people that shouldn't be allowed to be here, right, and that are just as bad as you, and you realize Jesus loves them and people you've never met, people that have died long before you, people that are yet unborn, people that will come from your wombs and families yet that we don't, haven't even named yet, that Jesus died for them and that you are in this place after the cross, before heaven, realizing who and what you are in Christ, that you cherish it in a way that it, it changes you. Do you understand? You have to realize that these means that God is using with all of us together, you're not too sophisticated for, you're not too mature for, you're not too good for. The more you love these boring things, the more mature you are. Then thirdly, he says, they, the labor and vibrancy of the local church comes from the work and spiritual vibrancy of every Christian coordinated in the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the Father, and that he, God, the Father, providentially gives people their gifts, right? And then the Holy Spirit empowers with spiritual gifts. So you're, how much, how big a brain you have, like, apparently that's like the kids are saying this now, they got a big brain. I, that's so dumb. But like, like, how, like your, your, your IQ was determined in some ways by God's providence. Your spiritual gifts are determined by the giving of the Holy Spirit, by his providences. We're all brought together by the word of Christ and what he has done. That, that's all ordered by God so that the work would be done by all of us. This is how they say it. To sustain its worship and to steadfastly cherish and hold its ordinance and disciplines and doctrines. Semicolon. And then it says this. To contribute as faithful stewards. See that language? I didn't make that up. That wasn't me. That they started this church on those truths. As faithful stewards. What do we do? We contribute such time, talent, and money in the measure that God prospers each of us that the responsibility for the work of the local church and the worldwide ministry of spreading the gospel be faithfully and effectively discharged. Do you realize there is no mention of staff in that? There's no mention of pastors. There's no mention of any expertise or PhDs or theological books. There's no mention of elders. This was the congregational Baptist theology. You can have elders. You can have pastors. They're all great. But this church's work, the work of the spreading of the gospel, the work of loving people here, the work of the church is our work. It's your work. And see, the thing is, like, it's so easy when you make your life busy in a world like this to be like, oh, I wish somebody would do that for me. Right? But what is the thing in your life that you don't want somebody else doing for you? Like, like I, don't, I don't want somebody else to go on dates with my wife for me. Okay, there's things, there are a lot of things I wish other people would do for me. That's not one of them, okay? Watching football playoffs and like eating things my wife makes. I don't need somebody to do that for me. There are things in my life that I jealously protect and I don't want other people to do them for me. Do you understand? That's how you should feel about the work of the church. Because the work of the church is the work of the kingdom of God. It is the work Christ has given all humanity that is redeemed to do. It is your, it does not belong to me. It does not belong to Mike Beresford. It does not belong to Nicole or Jill or Aaron or any of those people. It belongs to all of us together. It's our work. And these people were jealous that nobody would take it from them. It was theirs because it was like somebody going on, on their wife, a date with their wife without them. Like, they don't want to give that up. That's their favorite thing. Right? That's what this stuff we do together, the discipling and the ordinances and the worship and the enjoying of God and the loving of each other, it should be the dearest thing that we would never want delegated. We want everything else in our life for somebody to be able to do that for us so that we could do this more. Do you understand? And I don't mean being at church. I mean being the body of Christ in the local church. Do you understand? The fourth thing is, oh, we got kind of get rolling here, okay? Transmitting the faith is fundamental to the work of the in intergenerational church. They explicitly talk about their children, their neighbors, and I want to say non-controlling generations. I'll tell you what I mean by that in a second. So they say this, we also agree to maintain family and private devotions. I'm not going to spend much time on that, but you can see that these people were serious business about the three levels of worship. Worship in the local church, worship in the family, and personal private worship of the individual person. The worship must happen on all three of those levels and should to maximize our growth and devotion, right? But then he says this, to teach the Bible to our children, to seek the salvation of our kindred and our acquaintances. So 
One, so A, having children and teaching children our faith is extremely important. Right? It's not just reaching other people that don't know Jesus who are already adults or kids that don't know Jesus that are not in our families. The passing on of the faith to our own children is extraordinarily fundamental. Listen, um, sometimes we think they're just going to become Christians because they grew up with us. That is not true. And I know, one of the things I know from being a pastor and having lots of different staff and stuff like that is people who are actually discipled from a very young age are ready to do adult things so much sooner. They know stuff. They're ready for stuff. They've had disciplines built into them. You, you get some, some kid like from a family that doesn't know Jesus at all and like doesn't raise them with any of that stuff and you like get them at like 24 and they accept Jesus. It's like a decade. It takes so long. I mean, if they work really hard, it's still a few years before they start getting these things in place and learning the scriptures and do. Our kids have the ability to know the truth. And you may be like, well, maybe it doesn't fire up. It doesn't matter. Maybe it won't fire up until they're 15 or 21. But let's get the engine in place ready to fire up. Okay, at some point, the Holy Spirit has to fire that up. They have to turn that ignition themselves. They have to embrace it themselves. And that gets fired up for them. But we can start building the car in them. And we should. And it's really important. And so, like, all of you who, like, who, like, volunteer with kids and with youth, and just all of you that just don't hate kids, like, that you, you're nice to kids in the hallway, and, like, you affirm the good stuff you see in them. Like, is, that is such important work. Right? It's not just picking the low-hanging fruit. It's really, really important. Our kids right now, our five-year-olds and our two-year-olds and our one-year-olds, like, these are the kids that will determine it in years coming if we have a strong children's ministry, if we have a strong youth group, if there's any voice of Jesus in any of the schools and any of the systems that we have, and what, it's, what our college ministries are going to look like and what's going to happen in a lot of different areas. And that really matters, right? And then also our acquaintances, the people who we are acquainted with. This, in this context, doesn't just mean people who you met one time, but these are all the people who you have become acquainted with from acquaintance to coworker and friend, right? It's all those people. And then our kindred are also the people we access through family. But what this also recognizes too is that there's an intergenerational nature to the reaching, okay? Um, one of the things that I've talked with younger ministers about when I was a younger minister was how frustrating it is to work under a senior pastor that seems very intent on reaching his own generation of people and does not seem very interested in reaching the generations younger than him right? It's usually because his generation has um, people with, like, more matured incomes, and it's financially better for the church anyway. And one of the things I really struggled with when I was served under a boomer was we didn't seem real interested in my age people. And one of the things I've run into at High Point a little bit is I've kind of flipped that on its head, and sometimes some of the older people have felt kind of like, I don't care about anybody over 30, even though, like, I'm 40. And I totally get that. Like, I totally understand that. And there are times where I pay, I do, I, I overpay attention to younger people and I overpay attention to people who aren't white. I do that. It's, it's, it's intentional, strategic decision. And I, I like, I sort of don't apologize for it and I also wish it could be different. Right? And um, I don't think it's favoritism. I, I really do think it is a desire to see us be an intergenerational church and to bring in younger people. And my goal has always been because I've been to churches that didn't have younger people. They only had older people. And what the older people in those churches said is, isn't it a shame the younger people don't come here? I would love to, I would love to mentor a younger person. I'd love to be involved in these younger people's lives. They're just not here. Isn't it a shame? And I, and I remember as, like, as a 19-year-old in college, being one of the only younger people in my church, thinking, that's not going to happen in my church. It's not going to happen in my church. I'm going to make hypocrites out of these old people. Or we're going to have a beautiful intergenerational co-mentoring body of Christ, right? And I am not just here to pastor everybody. I'm partly here to be a conduit between generations. And one of the things I've tried to do for everybody is to try to gather people together so that we have a place where we have every generation present so that the work of the church that belongs to all of us can happen across generations. So that it's not just the littlest kids we're teaching the Bible to, but it's all the generations ministering to each other. Do you understand? And so, yes, it is true that I, am, I spend more time focusing on different people, but it's because I want them all here so that the work of the church that belongs to you can be done. And when I get done with these young people, which I'm basically, I'm 40, so I'm basically done with that. Um, it's, it's, it's all these younger staff people now who have to get the 20-somethings to come. Um, I, like, I, I want to reach out to people of different races, and then I want to reach out to people who speak different languages, and then I want people who make less than $40,000 a year 
to come here, and then less than $25,000 a year to come here, and I want them all to be here, and I want you to think that I favor them, right? Nick only likes painters, you know? Like, that's what I want you to think, and because I want them all to be here and for us to do our work together and disciple everyone. Does that make sense? And these people, they understood this. They understood, they understood this. Okay, how are we doing here? Okay, we're getting three minutes left. Okay, we're, let's be fine. Um, five is promote together a ministry of integrity. Did you notice that in this, there's an extended section of we are going to be godly out there in the community and we are gonna, we're going to express and display in the world a ministry of integrity, right? This is how they say it. We also agree to be just in our dealings and faithful in our engagements, to be exemplary in our conduct, and to avoid all worldly practices which bring reproach, unkind words, and unrighteous anchor, social media, among other things, Right? So that's, they focus on that first. Like, every, I'm gonna, we're going to have integrity in everything that we do. I don't know if you know this, but the earliest documents that say what the early church did, so the earliest church, they sang songs without instruments, they took communion, and they asked each other whether or not they were having integrity in their lives. That's what, they, that's, that's, that's what the early church worship service was. They didn't have highfalutin educated preachers and stuff like that. They didn't have organs, you know, like we do. Gosh. You know, like they, what they had, they had, all they had were people who were mostly day laborers and slaves who got together and they sang a song about Jesus. They took communion because Jesus had died for all of them the same. And then they said, are you cheating on your wife or not? Did you pay the bills you were supposed to pay? Did you, did you give your master or your boss a real day's labor? Did you conduct yourself with the integrity of Jesus this week? That's what they asked each other. And it, it sounded like they kind of got in each other's face a, face a little bit about it. And that's what they did. That's all they did. And they said, look, they said, look that's, supposed, that's an important part of what we do, right? And then the first section here is we're going to have integrity. And then this next section is we're going to have more integrity than is even required for the sake of the name of Jesus among people. So they say, we also desire by God's help, because they realize now they're, they're like going to take this. They're not going to just not lie and cheat. They're going to take this up another level. So they say, by God's help, to avoid all worldly practices which bring reproach to the cause of Christ. So stuff that in good conscience you could do. You could do. But because of people's bad attitudes, they would, they would feel like Jesus wasn't great. And they're like, with God's help, we're going we're gonna to burn to ashes all that freedom we have too for the good of people and to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. All right, I'm not, I can't spend more time on that now right now. Six is commitment to the gracious interrelations, promoting purity and peace. So there are all these ways in which they said, listen, we're going to live for the purity and the peace of our church. Now that was, that was a wise thing to write for a fundamentalist church because what fundamentalists, fundamentalists like to do? Split and fight, right? Why? Because they want the church to be pure. That's right. Fighting fundies. That's, why, that's how they got their name, man. We, so we'll split and split and split because, I mean, I— I don't know about these other people. They're not going to heaven. Like, I, I've got the truth, and I don't know. I'm not sure about my wife. You know what I mean? Like, it's like that. It's, it's, the fundamentalist movement was very, very focused on purity. But these people read their Bibles because fundamentalism told you you had to read your Bible because the Bible is the word of God written, and you need to read the heck out of it because those liberals don't read their Bibles, right? Well, these people read their Bibles, and they realized that God cared about more than just purity. He wants purity, and he wants peace, right? He wants unity. He wants both of those things. And you need to find out how to do both of those things. And so they're like, we need to figure out how to do both of those things. And so they list a bunch of them. I'm going to, let's do them in this list. One is they're like, we're going to admonish people. That is, tell people what they're doing wrong and what they need to do. And they say, with meekness, which I say candor with kindness. It's the same thing. Admonishment with meekness, right? And then we're going to pray for each other. We just covered that in Ephesians 6.18. All kinds of prayers, all kinds of ways, all kinds of times. They prayed for each other. Right? Do, we, do you do that? Do you pray for other people in here? And then aid each other in sickness and distress. I've heard some really great stories of people in here doing that. But that's, that was considered normal and biblical to these people. Christian sympathy. That's a really interesting one. Christian sympathy. What does that even mean? Right? There was a guy this week who gave me um, this Vietnam veteran magazine. He was like, here, Nick, some of your spare time, you can read this. And I was like, Charlie Pinocian, why do you think I have spare time to read this? Right? But this is a magazine that just people who are Vietnam veterans for the most part get. People who had this experience together. And they have this magazine so they can like read about other people's experience in this thing. And they like, they get each other. They all did this together, right? People who understood the Bible this way understood that being a Christian was, was a fight for your life. 
that it was making war against the kingdom of Satan and living for the kingdom of their Savior. It was not easy to pursue righteousness and holiness. Like, in, in, a, in, a, in a different kind of sense, everybody who's a Christian is a war veteran of a war that nobody else knows anything about. Do you understand? And because of that, veterans always care about each other. They're always, they're always willing to give each other grace and support each other and be there for each other because they've known they've gone through a hard experience with them. With, you know, they're like, I've been through that really hard experience. I know what it's like. It's hard, man. And if you are really endeavoring to live for the glory of Jesus Christ, like you really want sin to die a thousand deaths and you want to be full of the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit and have the mind of Christ and obey Jesus in all things, you know very deeply that you're fighting a war with yourself, with the flesh, with the devil, with all kinds of stuff. And you are fighting war every day. And if you believe another person is fighting that same war, you believe both those things, you will be kind to them. You will have sympathy for them. And they said, we're going to make sure we cultivate this in our minds and heart, that as we fight this battle together, we are going to have sympathy for each other because we know what it means to try to be fighting this fight. And then courtesy and speech. We're going to speak well to each other and kindly to each other. And then slow to take offense and quick to forgive. Listen, you have no idea how hard this is. Like, we, I'm going to tell you a story. about. We're out of time, but I'm still going to tell you a story. Am I, am I negative three? I'm counting on last things. Okay, we're almost done. We're, we're really close. We're in staff meeting today. I'm going to tell you about this because we're all, everybody on staff is so spiritual, right? So we're in staff, and in staff meeting, we do the same questions your small groups do. What's Jesus' prayer request for you? It's basically what we do is, what do you see God working in our church? What's Jesus' prayer request for you? And there were a bunch of prayer requests people had. And Menohar pipes up like right at the end. Can I say this, Menohar, about you? Are you okay with it? Okay, great. I don't hear you. You're not objecting. So um, Menohar goes, you know what? I've noticed. Is it okay if I say this? Okay, great. He goes, I've noticed that a lot of us a lot of our prayer requests are basically, we have stuff against people. Like we're angry at our parents, we're angry at our sisters, we're angry at ourselves, we're angry at our kids, we're angry, we're just angry. We need to forgive. Like, I don't know if you know this, but that's like basically the first thing in Christianity. It's like you got to forgive. You got to do it. Like right now, let's do it right now, right? And so like we prayed right there. Like tears and boogers and stuff. Like, like we're just like, we need to forgive. We're the staff of this church. You know what I mean? But we, ha- we pray together to, like, who do, who do we need to forgive? We need to forgive people. Because no church can be what this covenant covenants for that doesn't forgive, is slow to take offense, has sympathy with what other people do to us because they're fighting this battle too, and are quick to forgive and very slow to take offense, right? And then lastly, mind being mindful of the Scriptures, just knowing that, like, the Scriptures tell us what to do, not our vanity. Does that make sense? It's really important for us to understand that the church is a lot of things. The church is the body of Christ. The church is a kingdom of, a family of brothers and sisters who are heirs of the glory of Christ. The church is the called. The word ecclesia means the people, those who are called out into something, right? We're, we're the called. We're, we're God's elect, right? And God makes us into a holy temple. And there are some other metaphors in the New Testament of what we spiritually are in God's sight. But listen, you don't actually get to see any of those things. You can't see any of them. The only thing you can see and commit to and covenant to is the part of the church you can see, which is the local church of physical believers. That is the institution of the local church that Jesus created. And he instituted it in all the ways you institute something. He instituted us as a church in Matthew 16. He commissioned something. You've got to have a group of people to commission. He gave it a form of authority. He gave us the elders and what is sometimes called the fivefold ministry. Like how we're led, we have a structure he gave us a discipline of how we're meant to discipline each other that are based on certain rules that are instituted. He gave us ordinances that, that, that are acts of our institution. And he gave us a pump—we're supposed to be a publicly identifiable group. He can write to the church at Ephesus. We know who those people are. In Revelation, the angel—we can talk about the church in Theratyra and Smyrna and Laodicea. Because that, that's a group of people. We know who they are. Does that make sense? The church is an institution. And the way to— experience the spiritual realities of being part of the church of God. All of these things that we are, the body of Christ, is to be a covenant participant in the local church as a person who understands that it is covenantal. Do you understand? Now, you might be like, that was not as applicable as these talks are supposed to be. I hope you don't feel that way. I hope you'll take that with you and read it and think about what it means to be a covenant part of the body of Christ in the local church. And that really has to percolate in you because if you're going to explain it to like an angry 20-year-old who doesn't want to join stuff, you can't be angry about it. You can't be heavy-handed. 
You have to be able to take them through all the diffuse and dispersed scriptures in the Bible and bring them to the heart of the Christian covenant of our theology that we are one together in the body of Christ under the lordship of Jesus, led by the Holy Spirit to salvation, and drawn by that confession to baptism. And by that, we constitute one covenantal people. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Father, um, I pray that what I said tonight was inspiring and helpful for people. I pray that we would go out of here knowing that whatever our mothers and fathers were like in the flesh, that we have mothers and fathers in this family of God. In just in this local church, much less the hundreds and thousands of them throughout the world and throughout the history of the church that have left us a great and beautiful legacy of what it means to be your people. And I pray that, I pray that 60 years from now, we will have passed this on and people will be looking back in a room like this and say, hey, do you know what they did 50 years ago at High Point Church? Do you know what those people did? They did it for you. They did it for us, for a new generation. I pray that they would say that about us. And I pray that everyone here would feel and know that you are accomplishing things through their work. That every hour they give, every prayer that they pray, the hopes that they have in you, that you are bringing about good and you are bringing in a harvest and you are doing the things you've promised through this strange institution of the local church. listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.